0: Greetings to all of our podcast listeners. I would like to apologize for the quality of the recording you're about to hear. We had a power outage during the sermon and as such we've pieced together different recordings of the sermon trying to keep as much of the live recording as possible. So this is a bit of a Frankenstein podcast you're about to listen to but it's all real Uh, so please do not let this put you off. I believe this is one of the most important messages of the entire series. So, enjoy. Alright, so welcome to our series called The Reason for Everything. And just to remind you, this is not normally how we do a preach or a message on a Sunday morning. What we're doing in the course of this series is we are looking at questions and obstacles to people coming to faith. And we're trying to deal with them to equip you to engage with those who are asking these very important questions. Some of you are maybe experiencing doubts and concerns and are asking these very same questions. So we are looking at the evidence that speaks to the truth of what we believe. But what we normally do is we read the Bible, we try and understand it, we try apply it into our lives, and... Why? Why is that what we normally do here on a Sunday? Well, we would argue that we as believers need to have a high view of the Bible, that God inspired the Bible, that the Bible is the primary way that God speaks, is the primary way that we know what He is like, who He is, what we're supposed to believe, and how we're supposed to live. Now for many years the Bible held some sort of cultural weight. And I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years ago. And if you said anything and you simply just added the words, well, because the Bible says so, well, for many people, that was enough. But unless you've been living in a cave, you would know that things have changed. And many who call themselves Christians who have an issue with the Bible, they may say things like this. Well, isn't the Bible just a bunch of old stories and myths? Isn't the Bible not an accurate historical record? Doesn't the Bible contradict itself all the time? Hasn't the Bible changed radically over time and people have added to the Bible and have written their own agendas into the Bible? Isn't the Bible so outdated and irrelevant? I mean, here we are, 2018, this was written thousands of years ago. I mean, here are some quotes from some people who are not believers, and uh, what they've said about the Bible. So Bart Ehrman was a Christian and a New Testament scholar, and he kind of had a deconversion. This is what he says. Some of the writers of the Bible were religious geniuses, but they were not inspired by God, in my opinion, any more than any other geniuses. And they contradict each other all over the map. Richard Dawkins says, To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, just plain weird. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens, he says, The Bible was put together by crude, uncultured human mammals. And uh, if you've ever read Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, uh, he says this in that book, The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times. And it has evolved through countless translations, additions, and revisions. History has never Had a definitive version of the book, so maybe you've heard these kinds of statements. Maybe you've had these kinds of thoughts. And normally, because we claim to believe in the Bible, we use the Bible to talk about the Bible. But that's not what we're going to do today. Because if you don't believe the Bible, all right, and we say, well, and well, this is what the Bible says, and you say, well, how do you believe that? Well. The Bible says so. And, uh, well, how do you know that? And how can you trust the Bible? Well, the Bible says we can trust the Bible. That's what is called circular reasoning. So we're not going to use the Bible to talk about the Bible today. Right? Again, rest of the year, that's what we do. uh, But that's not what we're doing today. So we're asking the question, can we trust the Bible You see, these people that I've just quoted, they know that if we can discredit the Bible, man, we get rid of God, we get rid of religion, we get rid of some of these pesky Christians, and we can all just go home. But we want to show that we can trust the Bible, and we're going to look at the evidence for it. One of the things I love about the Bible is that, excuse the pun, but we can play open book. We're saying, check it out. Apply your most rigorous testing. You see, for so many other religions and cults, uh, if you had to ask these kinds of questions about their scriptures, uh, if you had to begin testing or questioning these things, I mean, you might get kicked out. And to be honest, in some places, you may even disappear for questioning the books. And yet we're saying we are invited to test. We are saying this book is open to scrutiny. Now, a fair warning on the front end of today's message. Today is probably the most fact-heavy message of the entire series. And uh, I just want to let you know, uh, you probably are not going to remember everything that we say during the course of this message, but it is so important that you understand that we have good reasons for trusting the Bible, and therefore possibly for moving on to trusting the God of the Bible So the rest of the message, we're looking at this evidence. And I want to start off by showing you why we can trust the Bible historically. We can trust the Bible historically. And as we talk about trusting the Bible historically, we're going to look at it from a number of different angles. And the first one is this. We're going to look at the bibliographical evidence for the historical trustworthiness of the Bible. So some people say that, okay... Alright, maybe there was some guy, some religious guy, a great teacher or prophets, so he was in his cave, and maybe he wrote down a bunch of cool stuff 2-3,000 years ago, but there's no way we can know what they wrote down. and This was thousands of years ago. The Bible's changed. It's been added to. And they would point to something like the broken telephone game. I mean, you know how the game works. Either, uh, well, a whole bunch of kids sit in a circle, and either they get given a sentence or they make up a sentence, uh, a sentence like, the apple is orange and sitting on the teacher's desk. And the one kid whispers that sentence into the next kid's ear, and then he recounts what he thought he heard into the next kid's ear. He eventually goes all the way around, and the final kid stands up and says, the orangutan is loose, and it's about to make a wreck. So, scholars are saying, and people are saying, well, if we can't even get that right, it's impossible to believe that what these guys wrote down thousands of years ago is what we have today. And that's a very good question. But not only do we need to apply that thinking to the Bible, we need to apply the thinking to all of our ancient documents. And there are actually some methods that scholars use to determine how much an ancient document has changed over time. So, the first thing that they look at is they look at how many ancient copies of the manuscripts that we have. Because the more you have, you can study the variations, you can determine where the mistakes are, and which are in the original. The other thing that scholars look at is the time between the manuscript was written and the earliest copies we have of those ancient manuscripts. And obviously, the shorter the time period, the less time you have for mistakes to creep in. So, I want to start off by talking about the most reliable ancient document that we have uh, other than the Bible, which we'll get back to. And that is Homer's Iliad. Now, the Iliad was written about 800 BC, uh, uh, in about 800 BC, about the Trojan War. And the earliest copies we have of the Iliad is 400 BC. So, that's a time gap of about 400 years. And to date, we've discovered about 1,500 copies of the Iliad. Alright, so this is what you do. You take those 1,500 copies, you compare them, you see where the mistakes lie. We realize there's a gap of about 400 years, so maybe a couple of mistakes would have crept in. But we can get a really good idea as to what was in the original text. Another document is written by a guy called Herodotus. He's called the father of history. And um, he recorded a lot of history from the ancient world, and this was written in about 450 B.C., Uh, To date, we've got about 49 papyrus fragments of Herodotus with the earliest surviving manuscript coming from the 10th century AD. This was written 450 BC. So we've got a gap of 1,450 years. Let's talk about Plato. Plato was considered to be the most pivotal figure in the development of philosophy. He wrote his seven tetralogies around 400 BC. At last count, we've got about 210 ancient manuscripts, with the oldest surviving manuscript from 895 AD. That's a gap of 1,300 years. Now I'm not trying to choose the most disputed documents. These are the most reliable historical documents and famous. We could talk about Caesar's Gallic Wars. We could talk about Pliny the Elder. We could talk about Tacitus.
1: Now if you've ever studied philosophy or European history Here's what you never see your professor do. You never see your professor stand up at Philosophy 101 with all these bright-eyed students and say, Listen, guys, I, I, don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but you came here to study Plato. I, look, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but we've only got 200 ancient copies of Plato's writings. And when what is more, guys, I, I hate to tell you this, but we've got a gap of... 1,350 years between the time he wrote the stuff down and the oldest copy we've got. So, philosophy students, I'm sorry to tell you, we've got no idea what Plato actually wrote. We don't even know Plato existed. (laughs) Again, what you don't see when you switch on the history channel or the natural geographic channel is someone saying, listen guys, I know you've all seen astro And you all think Caesar was a real guy? But listen, when we look at the number of copies that we've got of Caesar's Gallic Wars, and um, when we look at the gap between the oldest documents and the time that he wrote them down, or his scribes did, we just have no clue what he actually wrote down. We've got no way of telling that what happened is actually what happened. In fact, we don't even know if Caesar existed. Because he, here's what you do experience if you go to philosophy 101. You study Plato as if what he wrote down is what we've got. Yeah. And when we search on the National Geographic Channel and we get information from Caesar's Gallic Wars, that is portrayed as actual history. Yeah. And when we ask why, when we look at this kind of evidence, scholars will say, but we've got good evidence to believe that what we've got is what they wrote. And they'll point to the very facts that I've just given you as indisputable evidence that we can access what they wrote down accurately. But the Bible, no, no, no. The Bible, no, that was added to over time. Bunch of uncultured mammals. They had no clue about science. They had no clue about history. We cannot access the historical information of that time. So, Let's apply the same methods to the Bible that we've just applied to Plato, Tacitus and Herodotus. So the Bible, because we've got to let's just talk New Testament, it just focuses our focus. Um, New Testament written between about 50 AD and 100 AD possibly the book of John is the last book that was written down as an old, a guy who lived to his old age and wrote all these things down. The oldest surviving manuscript that we have from the New Testament is 140 AD. That's a gap not of 200 years. That's a gap not of 1,400 years. That's a gap of 40 years. Unlike, by a long shot, any other ancient documents. Okay, well, how many copies do we have? Well, the New Testament was written in Greek. And at last count, again these numbers have been updated, at last count we have over, not 200 copies, not 49 copies, we have over 5,500 Greek copies of the New Testament. Add to that, the number of ancient copies that we have of the Greek New Testament that were translated into languages like Syriac and Coptic, and we get over 25,000 copies of the New Testament. And yet, the world would still say, we can trust Plato, we can't trust Mark. We can trust Herodotus, we can't trust Paul. And I've been trying to show you that the very evidence that they used to trust Plato, Tacitus and Herodotus shows that the New Testament is thousands of times more reliable as a historical document than any other document on the face of the earth. So some people would concede at that point and say, okay, th- th- that's fine. But there's one more thing that's used to to determine how much we can trust this old document. And that is the time between the actual events that transpired and the time of writing. So, Karen Armstrong, she wrote a New York Times bestseller called, A History of God. This is what she said about the Gospel of Mark. We know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was since Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about the year 70. which as you've seen is actually quite a good, reasonable gap, some 40 years after his death. By that time, listen to her argument, historical facts... (coughs) have been overlaid with mythical elements which express the meaning Jesus had acquired for his followers rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. The claim is basically this. Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead. Jesus didn't perform miracles. He might have been a great teacher. He might have been a great prophet. He might have had a bit of a movement. But there's no way he did those things. And probably what happened was he had a meal and they had some, some fish and some loaves and that just happened to feed a large number of people with that meal. And then after Jesus died, they told the story. We fed 20 people with two loaves and five fish. And then, and then the story became, no, no, it wasn't 20 people, it was 50 people. Five loaves, sorry, five fish and two loaves. And then the story goes, no, I heard it was a thousand people. And eventually we land on 5,000 people. Wow! Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I mean, He said things like, I'll be with you always. There's no way He rose from the dead. But, you know, maybe after a period of time, Jesus' disciples were like, listen, maybe He did rise from the dead. And start talking about it and spreading it and spreading it and spreading it until, you know, wholesale people started believing that Jesus rose from the dead. No historical accuracy. It's just kind of grew mythologically. That's the claim. Here's the problem with that claim. There are too many eyewitnesses, and the time is too short for myth to develop. Here's the thing. If you want to make up stuff, okay? One, two... We'll get there now. If you want to make up stuff, one two, one two, there we go. If you want to make up stuff that isn't true, you've got to either go to Australia, not because they're you know going to believe everything you say. (laughs) What I'm saying is you've got to get away from where it all happens. Because when Jesus fed the 5,000, when Jesus fought the crowds, when Jesus was crucified, these were public events. It's not like Jesus got in a cave and emerged 30 years later with a whole bunch of spiritual writings. So you've either got to go to Australia and try and do some people there, or you've got to wait until all the eyewitnesses have died. See, in order for me to convince you that the Holocaust never happened, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go to some part of planet Earth where they've never heard about the Holocaust. Or, unfortunately, there's so much recordings there. I'm going to wait because the thing is, if I stand up here here and say the Holocaust never happened, we're going to to have people rising and saying, but I was there. Or my grandpa was there. Or we've got these thousands and thousands of eyewitness accounts and photographs of the Holocaust. You cannot say that. I mean, the gospel writers actually record people's names. They don't just say
0: some guys. They say, Simon of Cyrene. In other words, go ask Simon. Paul talks about 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And he actually says, because we know that Paul's books were written 15 to 20 years, at least the earliest ones, 15 to 20 years after the life of Christ. And some of the elements he included in his books were songs that the Christians were already singing about Jesus. Philippians 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In other words, these truths were circulating from the time of Christ. We know that for a fact. Paul says, 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, some are still alive. In other words, you know, Steve, go ask Steve. If you don't believe Steve, go ask Darrell you don't ask Daryl, there's hundreds of others who saw Jesus. You see, if you make these kinds of claims and the eyewitnesses are still alive, man, all they needed to do is say, Look, that, that's not what happened. That's not how it went down. And then that myth dies. So let me say again, there are too many eyewitnesses and the time is too short for myth to develop. C.S. Lewis was an atheist who became a Christian. And he loved myth, and he grew up in the Nordic myths. And when he became a, a scholar, still as an atheist, this is what he studied. And he said it takes three or four generations. That's 40 years times three or four for myth to develop. There's no way in 15 to 20 years myth has time to develop, especially with all of these eyewitnesses. So we've spoken about how there's the bibliographical evidence that we can trust the Bible historically. Now I want to talk about the archaeological evidence. You see, not only were real people's names used, but real places were referred to. And for so long, uh, many skeptics have said, listen, we can't trust the Bible because it refers to places that haven't been discovered archaeologically. Therefore, take your Bible, burn it, tear it up, let's all go home. We've got better things to do with our time. In the book of John, chapter 5, it refers to a place called Bethesda by a pool near the sheep gates with a five-roofed colonnade. People had been digging around Jerusalem. No pool by Bethesda near the sheep gates with five-roofed colonnade. But if you went to Israel today and if you found what is called St. Anne's Church, which has got this beautiful acoustics, they always get the tour groups to sing in this church you just literally walked out the front door of the church walked to a barrier you are looking down at a pool by Bethesda near the sheep gate with a five roofed colonnade imagine that Uh, this one also happened quite recently the New Testament makes mention of a town called Magdala we've heard of Mary Magdalene it's just another way of saying Mary of Magdala And again, scholars were saying, listen, there's no town called Magdala, therefore take your Bible, burn it, tear it up, let's all go home. 2006-2007, archaeologists began unearthing the town of Magdala on the shores of Lake Galilee. The Bible talks about Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect. And again, scholars have been saying, well, listen, there's a Roman prefect, the governor. There's, there, there surely should have been a record of this guy's name. There's no Pontius Pilate. Therefore, there's no Bible. There's no Jesus. Tear it up, burn it, let's go home. 1960, the town of Caesarea Philippi. I've been there on the west coast of Israel, on the shores of the Mediterranean. They uncover a stone that says, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Now, guys, I've just mentioned three. There are hundreds of these. Nelson Glick, considered to be one of the world's greatest archaeologists, he appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and he was credited with personally uncovering over 1,500 archaeological sites in the Middle East. This is what he said. No archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. See, every time an archaeological site is found, one more obstacle is removed. One more piece of evidence is presented to the world. One more confirmation that we can trust the Bible. We can take a book like the Book of Acts, written by Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, he was well versed in dealing with facts and evidence. All right, he was not some sort of mystical follower of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, Luke makes mention of 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands, and he mentions by name and rank 65 Roman Jewish and Gentile leaders. Sir William Ramsay was an atheist and the son of an atheist, came from a wealthy family and studied at the prestigious University of Oxford in archaeology, And he was told, like so many people in that time were told, we cannot trust the New Testament historically. We cannot trust that it is reliable. So he decided to literally take the book of Acts. He set out for the Holy Land and he was going to disprove the Bible over the course of the next 25 years. He started releasing book after book after book, just uh, recounting his discoveries. And this is what he finally declared. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He's possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to his trustworthiness. And Sir William Ramsay shocked his followers and his fans after 30 years of attempting to use archaeology to disprove the Bible. Shocked the public by declaring that he had now become a believing Christian because he saw we can trust the Bible historically and archaeologically. But what about all these contradictions? Just this last week, a member of our church texted me with a contradiction. The Bible seems to say this, and then it seems to say that. What do we do with that? Reddit.com is one of the largest online gatherings of atheists, and they post contradiction, or at least alleged contradiction, after alleged contradiction, after alleged contradiction. So what do we do with these things as Christians? Well, again, I only have time to get into two um, because otherwise we would be here all day. Uh, So let's talk about two. So Matthew twenty-seven verses five says that Judas died by hanging himself, whereas Acts chapter one verses eighteen says that he died by buying a field, falling headlong into it, and literally all of his guts burst open. So you see, guys, there's a contradiction. Matthew and Luke are at odds with each other because Luke wrote Acts and therefore there's a contradiction and because our scriptural text should be without contradiction, we cannot trust the Bible. Burn it, tear it up, let's go home. Except, here's the thing. Maybe you've seen Law and Order or some of these movies that land up in a courtroom and they get a whole bunch of witnesses of an event. See, what starts to happen is if they've got three or four witnesses, just like we've got Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, got different witnesses and if you start hearing the same story told in the same way in the same order, the lawyers and the police will start to assume these guys have colluded they've made up a story but when person A tells a story from his angle, here's what he saw, here's how he experienced, here's what he remembers. Person B doesn't remember all those details, but something else stood out to them. Person C, well, this is what stood out to her, and this is what made sense to her. And person D, not that anyone's lying. Everyone is given an accurate account of the truth, just remembering different things. When it's too similar, you've made this up. But the very fact that there are different angles and different things are, are remembered, for example, do you think Jesus only told the story of the prodigal son once? He was an itinerant preacher. He went around preaching all the time. And so it makes sense with any of his parables. Just like I will sometimes use an illustration and in a few months time, I'll use the same illustration with slightly different details. Not that it's historically inaccurate. The point remains the same. And Matthew might remember it this way and Mark might remember it slightly differently. So here's what happens with Matthew. Matthew's telling of Judas' death and Luke's telling of Judas' death. You see, these are not contradictory ways of thinking. These are complementary ways of thinking. So what most likely happened is that he did go by by a field and he did hang himself in a tree and either, uh, you know, he bloated or that's what happens after you die and then the rope snapped or somebody cut him down and he fell and burst open on the floor. Who's hungry? <laughs> Another one of these contradictions and, and literally people lose faith over these things. People point out that Matthew 28 refers to an angel talking to woman. Whereas John 20 says that there were two angels. Again, is that a contradiction? Do we take a Bible, burn it, and go home? No. See, Matthew's talking about the angel that's talking. John is giving some sort of number to the number of angels that were there complementary accounts not contradictory accounts and literally we could go on and on and on and on just to show there is no contradiction in scripture and some very bright people who have many biblical languages under the belt have gone and studied these things and you can buy so many books about them so here we've got the set of ancient documents spanning about 1,500 years, written by more than 40 authors. Most of these authors had never met each other. Some of these authors were political leaders. Some were prophets, some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, some were doctors, some were herdsmen, some were priests. Written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And we've got this internal coherency, and we've got this golden thread of truth that starts at the beginning and ends at the end, and it's all coherent. It all makes sense, no contradiction. I mean, if you had to take 10 fourth year philosophy students from WITS, so in other words, same year group, similar people from Joburg, 2018, and if they had to write on a controversial subject like land grabs, or even a simple subject like, do you like Oros? <laughs> I can guarantee you now, you're going to get 10 differing accounts on the simple subject. And most certainly on the difficult subjects. And yet you've got this coherency. You've got this highway of truth that stands and is internally coherent. By the way, again, most other religions and cults will have a single author. And, and, and you can't really go and study how it came about into being because, you know, there were some magical tablets that some angel gave them. And then they wrote down and translated the tablets and then they, poof, disappeared. Or went into a cave and wrote down a bunch of good writings. And again, there's no way of testing things. There's no way of inviting this kind of research. And again, we're playing open book with this. So for all those reasons, we can trust the Bible historically. But we can also trust the Bible prophetically imagine I said, guys, he has an envelope, he has a blank A4 piece of paper. Over the next half an hour, I want you to make over 2,000 predictions for 1,500 years from today. I mean, just think about it. You, you can't just say things like, you know, the sun will get hotter. You're going to have to mention cities that are not yet in existence. You're going to have to mention countries and civilizations that are not yet in existence. And imagine I said, well, and and most of your predictions have to be around a single person. You've got to mention him by name. Some of the world leaders of the time and the organization of the time. Now imagine we seal that in one and a half thousand years' time. Open the envelopes. Imagine one of you were right to the letter. That's what we get with the Bible. That's what we get with the scriptures. Rome wasn't invented at the time that Rome was spoken about. Kings are mentioned by name. Crucifixion was not yet invented. And all of these came true. Uh, I was watching one debate with the late Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson, he was the Christian. And they got onto the topic of the prophetic reliability of the scriptures. And Christopher Hitchens said, please, please, Doug. Listen, if if the scriptures say that the king must ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, where's my donkey? Someone get me a donkey and I'll do it. So Douglas Wilson goes, okay, fine, Christopher. I'll give you the donkey. But how did Jesus organize where he was born? And as a sub two-year-old child, how did he organize, you know, walk into Herod's throne room. Herod, I just need you to kill about, you know, a couple of thousand babies under two years old. Does that sound convincing? How did a two-year-old baby convince his parents to flee into Egypt? Jesus on the cross, some Roman soldiers he's never met, how did he organize that? He got them to roll dice for his clothing. I know some of these numbers can be quite overwhelming, so I want to put the odds of some of these prophecies coming true into a picture. If you only took eight prophecies about Jesus... And Jesus had to fulfill only eight, that's only a small percentage, only eight prophecies about himself by chance, by pure fluke. What are the odds of that happening? And statisticians would say, take the state of Texas, roughly the size of South Africa, fill it two feet deep with $1 coins. Just toss these coins over. Take one coin, put an X over it and just toss these coins over, toss these coins over. Take one of you guys, blindfold you, let you walk around and when you want to pick up a coin, pick up the coin. You've only got one shot. The chances of you picking up the coin with an X on it is the chances of Jesus, just by chance, fulfilling only eight prophecies. I think that shows us that we can trust the Bible historically and we can trust the Bible prophetically. So guys, I want to start wrapping up. I just want to say that what I haven't even included this morning is I haven't even spoken about the Jewish scribes. That for them, it wasn't just sitting down and trying to make a copy of one letter to another letter and whoops, made some mistakes. These were professionals who were trained for years before they were allowed to transcribe Scripture. Man, I mean, they would have a single scroll. Some of these scrolls would be over 40 feet long. And the guys who did, in a sense, the auditing of the scrolls to check that it is an exact copy, they would know where the middle word of the scroll was and they would know what the middle letter was. And if any of those were wrong, they took that entire scroll, tore it up. I mean, these scribes, when they got to the word God, they took their task so seriously. They would go and they'd wash themselves before they wrote the word God and use a brand new pen. I was thinking, and one pastor was mentioning, you know, what do these guys do when they come home from works money very clean one day? You, know, you smell quite uh, sprightly, honey. Yeah, I mean, we were in Psalms today. And, you know, my God, my God. You know, my Lord, my God. And... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even spoken about the fact that there's so much counterproductive details in the Scriptures. I mean, if you're going to collude with your mate's Let's call us the apostles. We're gonna make up a religion. You're not gonna include certain details. You're gonna make yourself look like superheroes. You wanna go down in the records of history. You want people to go, wow, John, wow, Mark, wow, Peter. Instead, we go, oh, Peter's like us because he's a total idiot. (laughs) Right? Jesus. I mean, talking about the savior of the world. He's there and, and, and he's talking, you know, after his resurrection, he says, not even the son of man knows when he's going to return. You don't make that up. Yeah, I mean, you make the guy ripped and a total genius. Of course, Jesus is. But you can put him in the garden of Gethsemane wrestling over, Lord, is there another way? It's counterproductive if you're going to make it up. I haven't even spoken about the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, up until 1949, the oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had were from 900 A.D. when the Masoretes wrote them. 900 A.D., quite a long time from when the scrolls were written down. Oh, we can't trust the Old Testament, so therefore let's take it, burn it and throw it out and let's go home. 1949 find the Dead Sea Scrolls in a, a, the community known as the Essenes again I've been there very well visited in the, in the south of Judea near the Dead Sea a very like a desert community and again they were scribes and they were so committed to these writings And in 1949, a little Bedouin boy and his cousin or his brother, they were just looking after some goats and one disappeared and they wanted to find out, like, where did he go? So they took a stone, threw it into a cave and they heard this this, uh, jar shatter. They go up there and then, just long story short, they just uncover scrolls after scrolls after scrolls, thousands of Old Testament scrolls from before Jesus' time, probably 50 years B.C. to 100 years B.C. So guess what they do? well, let's see if these scrolls line up with the scrolls from 900 AD. And guess what? They're lined up. They're lined up. I mean, when you put all of this together, what do you get? How do we take this evidence? What are we going to conclude from this evidence? Because again, the accusation is, you Christians believe without evidence. All I've been talking about this morning is evidence. So why is the Bible so reliable? Why does it stand, not head and shoulders, but like knees, thighs, elbows, head and shoulders above every other ancient document? Why is that? Why is it so powerful prophetically? Why is it so powerful historically? Maybe, maybe it is God's word preserved by God. Maybe it is God's word preserved by God. Again, maybe you're never going to remember any of this stuff. But at least you know why we can trust the Bible. And how, how, many, how many people have walked away from faith because of a supposed contradiction that no one could resolve for them? How many people have walked away from faith because of something they read in the Da Vinci Code and no one else was speaking about the truth? How many people have walked away from the faith because the Bible mentions a town that we haven't discovered archaeologically archeolo- yet? And no one was able to go up to them and say, listen, let us show you the trajectory of the archaeological discoveries we've made. Every single one confirms what we see in Scripture. Let's go to the book of Acts. Let's go to Sir William Ramsey. No one was able to walk them through that. Also, how, how many people have walked away from the Bible because the Bible contradicts a deeply held cultural belief. Or something that they personally believed in. Well, here's what I believe. The Bible says that. Therefore, I'm going to burn it up and throw it away. Or here's where culture's going. And I like where culture's going. But the Bible says that. So I'm going to reject that. And I'm going to say that it's not God's word. Think about this. The fact that the Bible sometimes contradicts you. And the fact that the Bible sometimes and oftentimes challenges and contradicts culture is not evidence that it's not God's word, that's evidence that it is God's word. Because if the Bible only said what you already believe, that's not the God of the Bible, that's the God of your making. And someone in China is gonna have the God of their making. And they're gonna hold to things that they think the Bible says that is not what you think the Bible says. Doesn't it stand to reason, logically, that the God who made, again, let's, we're just going off the back of what we've heard the last few weeks. The God who made this universe. There's a creator behind creation. There's a designer behind the design. There's an artist behind the artistry. God behind this creation and this universe. Don't you think he's capable of preserving his book? Logically? If that kind of God exists? And don't you think it is logical to believe that He is probably going to confront every human being on the planet at some point? And he's going to contradict deeply held cultural beliefs over all of history and over all of culture at some point. That for me is more evidence that God does exist than he does not exist. But briefly, I want to flip this. Some of you here, and I'm speaking now to those who would call themselves Christians. Some of you say you believe in the God of the Bible. But you do not believe everything that's in here. I want to say, why? If you do not believe this, and yet you say you believe in the God of the Bible, why on earth do you believe the God of the Bible? See, I I want, I want to encourage a higher view of Scripture, especially for those who are believers. You see, doubting the truthfulness of God's Word is the oldest lie in the world, quite literally. where Adam was given this lie. Did God really say, oh, are you sure about that? He has this fruit, it's pleasing to the eyes, desirable. I mean, why would God hold out on you? I mean, we don't even have a reason why God didn't let them eat the apple. There's no reason given. Oh, why would God do that? Why would He not let you have that apple? So are you sure, Adam? Did He really say? And isn't that something you and I experience almost daily? There's something in this world that's desirable and pleasing to the eye. There's some agenda that we've got. There's something that we want in this world. Or there's a deeply held cultural belief or a deeply held theological belief, and we come to the scriptures and we see that it conflicts with what we believe or what we want. And the first thing that starts to come to our mind is, did God really say that? Ah, I don't know if that's God. I think there's just some people in the cave and we're not going to trust that. It's the oldest lie and the oldest challenge literally on the face of the earth. And we are still experiencing that today. So if you consider yourself a Christian, I, I, I encourage you this morning to take steps towards a higher view of this book. And if you're in any way doubting or if you're in any way cynical or if you would not, and maybe you're even listening online and you would not consider yourself religious or a Christian in any way, I want you to consider the evidence that we've spoken about this morning. And for so many people, the evidence which for all the other books is not even half of the evidence that we have for the Scripture. And yet we trust those people, we just don't trust the Bible. Consider that. Consider that. And over the course of the next two weeks, over this series, we're gonna be talking about Jesus himself, his claims, and the claims of the resurrection because that really centers in to the center points of our faith. Again, we're gonna be looking at evidence and we wanna invite every single one of you on that journey. So let us pray. Father, I am convinced and many in this room are convinced that this is God's word preserved by God. And there is evidence that we can trust the Bible archaeologically. There is evidence that we can trust the Bible archaeologically. There is evidence that we can trust the Bible prophetically. And that's got implications for every person in this room or listening to this message. And Holy Spirit, I'm asking that right now, as we listen to these very words... You are growing greater faith in us. God, we don't want to deify the Bible, but you do want to trust that the Bible talks about a real God. And therefore, we want to trust the scriptures in as much as they point towards a God who is trustworthy. And God, our logic only takes us so far. And it is only the welcome and the warmth of the Holy Spirit that's going to take us further. And I ask that you do that, God. May our view of Scripture grow and may our vision of you grow even more as we look at all this. In Jesus' name, amen.